Hello, you're listening to The 30 Minute Expert, the podcast that aims to make you an expert on a chosen topic in 30 minutes. This episode is designed to make you an expert on cryptocurrency, a type of currency which uses digital files as money and utilises the science of hiding information. A YouGov survey in May 2020 shows that 81% of Brits know not very much or nothing at all about Bitcoin, and I would class myself firmly in the nothing at all category. Here to change that is Rian Lewis, software developer and writer, co-founder of Count My Crypto, and author of the forthcoming book, The Cryptocurrency Revolution. Hello. Hi. Thanks now- for asking me on. Really nice to be here. Oh, thank you very much for uh, for coming on. And before we get stuck into the subject matter, can you uh, justify your position as today's expert with a quick rundown of how you got to know everything you know today? <laughs> it's always slightly um, awkward justifying one's own position as an expert. Um, I've got a BSc in economics um, and I work as an engineer. So uh, because cryptocurrency is kind of the intersection of economics and technology, um, I suppose that gave me an initial interest in it. Um, I got started getting really into it in about 2013 when I started doing a little bit of cryptocurrency trading Um, and that prompted me because there weren't many options around then for keeping track of what cryptocurrencies you had. A friend and I built a small cryptocurrency portfolio tracker called Count My Crypto and that was basically the um, start of me totally going down a rabbit hole with this stuff. I've written and spoken a lot about it over the last few years because I'm pretty evangelical about it. That's culminated in me actually writing a book, The Cryptocurrency Revolution, which is going to be published by Kogan Page this October. So all in all, I kind of pretty much live and breathe this stuff. Rianne, I'm going to level with you. I'm really worried that I'm not going to understand this one. Can you reassure me that in the next 30 minutes, I'm not going to be gazing into space, nodding politely? Is this all going to make sense? Um, I hope so. I've um, because I talk a lot about um, these subjects to people who have um, absolutely zero um, experience with it at all. I think I'm quite good in putting it into real layperson's language, but I will really try to steer clear of the jargon. Marvellous. That's exactly what we're all about. Thank you very much. Right. Your expertise is Bitcoin, blockchain and cryptocurrency. Which one do we need to cover first for this to make the most sense? They're pretty much inextricably linked. Um, Maybe if we start with Bitcoin, we'll find that the other terms get um, explained in the process of talking about Bitcoin. That works for me then. Uh, Lead the way. What is Bitcoin? Bitcoin is a peer-to-peer currency. Um, which has been around for more than 10 years now. I think people are often surprised that it's been more than 10 years because it's really only in the last um, handful of years that it's really come to public attention. When I say a peer-to-peer currency, if you pay somebody with Bitcoin or another decentralized cryptocurrency, it goes through a network of computers that are talking to each other, not talking to one big central computer or um, server like you have within the banking system. So this means that you can transfer large amounts of currency um, cheaply between people who you don't necessarily 
have to know who they are or in what country. You just know that you're transferring money or units of value from one computer to another computer. So that's essentially the way it works. It's kind of like the internet, but for money. And is the methodology by which you do that blockchain? Correct. I was waiting to, for you to ask me that question. And if you hadn't asked me that question, I would have um, prompted you. But um, a blockchain is simply what it, it it's what, exactly what it sounds like. It's a chain of blocks. And these blocks are made up of transactions. So probably the simplest way to explain this is to think about um, an old-fashioned clerk's office or accountant's office where um, the clerk might have had a sheet of paper on which the transactions from person A to person B were written. And then all those transactions got bundled up together into an envelope, sealed up, put in a drawer with other envelopes that were also sealed. It's pretty much like that in that it's a ledger of transactions. It's all digital, of course, and each group of transactions, each little sealed envelope of transactions um, are all bound up together in such a way that you just you don't you can't disassociate them from each other and then each bundle of transactions is bundled up and attached to the next group of transactions so you end up with if person a has paid person b and then further down the line person y has paid person z you can't actually unpick and separate the history of these transactions so you can see that um, the value that you're transferring existed however many transactions ago. And it's very difficult for person A to rewrite person B's transaction. It forms this unbreakable chain of transactions that are all linked together way back to the beginning of time. So when you mentioned about the transactions not being able to be sort of unpicked, as I'm someone from a generation where I have in the past written and cashed checks, is it kind of the equivalent of a check that you essentially cannot doctor the amount or change it? It's basically preserving it as whatever that amount is, whatever's written on it cannot be altered. Exactly. The transaction's there for the history um, for the entirety of time. Another thing that makes these data structures very strong is that they exist in multiple places at the same time. That's what we talk about when we talk about um, this concept of decentralization. So it's as if your check that you've written out was somehow copied and um, existed in thousands of other people's houses at the same time. You've got this check that's been written in indelible ink that isn't something that you're holding up. It's something that loads of other people have and can see a copy of. So we say that um, the strength of blockchains and other decentralized data structures is I see what you see. You know that because these transactions are pretty much immutable and they exist in 
lots of different places around the world that nobody, um, even if somebody tries to reverse a transaction, it has to be checked with all the other computers on the network so that um, you can't have different versions of the same thing existing at the same time. It all ultimately gets checked against one overall truth. So I've got my balaclava on, nobody knows it's me. You've got your balaclava on and nobody knows it's you, but I give you a check. Everybody else knows that's happened, they just don't know who we are. That's precisely it. Um, it's a bit of a myth that Bitcoin transactions are totally anonymous. They can usually be traced to some degree. But let's assume for the moment that... I'm transferring it to somebody who I don't know what it is. It's you with your balaclava on over there. Now, say um, I send that money to the wrong person or to the wrong address because the Bitcoin address is just a long sequence of numbers and letters. That means that, unfortunately, I've sent my um, two million pounds to some to somebody else and I can't actually get it back. That transaction is completely irreversible. So there are some downsides to that um, if you think in traditional banking terms. And of course, another thing um, that is very different from traditional banking is that the transactions happen in the open. So if, for example, I've sent you this two million pounds and it's being confirmed by all the different computers that are on the network because anyone can run Bitcoin software. You or I could download the software and run it on our computers, even though it requires these days quite a lot of computing power. But um, so if I know the num sequence of numbers and letters which I'm sending it to so that you can receive it, anyone in the world can see that transaction. So if you wanted to show your friends for, or your, somebody who was a business colleague who was waiting for this payment to clear, which it would um, in 10, 15 minutes or so, if you wanted to show that going through, all you would have to do is send them that sequence of letters and numbers and you would actually see the payment arrive in real time and everyone in the world can see that with no need to log in or to know anyone's username or account details. It's very transparent. It's transparent. That's what makes this innovation so exciting, really. You talk about it being decentralized, so there's no one person or government or corporation who's controlling it. But who actually is behind it? Who is Miss Bitcoin? Ah, we don't know who the person or people who invented um, Bitcoin are or were. Um, we know that uh, a person who went under the pseudonym of Satoshi Nakamoto released a white paper um, just over 10 years ago um, and explained his, her or their rationale um, and that's all we know. We know the names of some of the people who contributed to it. Bitcoin is open source software, which means that anyone can go and look at the computer code that underlies it. Anyone can contribute to this code. So if you um, are a computer programmer and you see something in bitcoin's code that you think could be improved you can actually submit a patch for that an improvement to be um 
looked at and potentially approved by the other developers who maintain it. Everything's in the open. But the thing about cryptocurrencies is that an anonymous person could um, release the code to run a new currency. People in the world could then run that software on their computers um, and then you have an entirely new way of sending value to people. It's, a, it's an extraordinarily liberating concept. I'm glad you mentioned the word value as opposed to the word money a second ago because if you're sending me 10 Bitcoin, and forgive my ignorance, I don't know if that's worth 4p or $80 trillion, but if you've sent me that... How does one place a value on the cryptocurrency and how do you put the money in and take it out in the first place? Okay, very good questions. Um, it's somewhere in the middle in terms of value. 10 Bitcoin is about um, $95,000 at today's prices, um, with each Bitcoin being worth about $9,500 at the current exchange rate. In the very early days of Bitcoin, in um, 2010, 2011, um, the value was worth um, a few cents simply because um, it was running on a handful of computers, but nobody was really prepared to accept it as payment for anything. Um, but the minute people started seeing that it had a resilience it began to acquire its own value. Um, and the value is in its utility for transferring value from one person to another. And also in storing that value. If you see that this network of payments has um, a resilience that mean that you are going to own the same amount of units of something tomorrow or in 10 years time as you own today, then something begins to acquire value and people will trade things for it. So you have this situation now where you have some goods and services where people will accept Bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies in exchange for them. Um, but you also have a situation where people will buy and hold Bitcoin for the sake of itself. Um, so increasingly, we're seeing the speculative use of cryptocurrencies, where people will trade them on exchanges, both for dollars, pounds, euros, or against each other. And they have this exchange value. And as far as using it, holding it, sending it from person A to person B, there are different ways that you can do this. If you're a purist, um, somebody who is interested in holding and controlling your own currencies, um, you obviously would have... It, I, I don't really like using the term wallet. People use the term wallet, but I, I think in many ways that's confusing people. You have a little software app that holds the sequence of keys and of um, numbers and letters that shows that you own those units of value then you have to be responsible for your own security. There's no CEO of Bitcoin or no customer service department where if you lose your 
sequence of um, numbers and letters, your private key, you can go and get it back. So understandably, some people feel more cautious about that. And in those situations, they can use um, mainstream apps like Revolut or eToro or Coinbase or their naming a whole list of them that allow you to um, have a more traditional username password setup where you um, they hold your Bitcoin for you and when you log in you see your euros dollars Bitcoin ethereum other cryptocurrencies so there are kind of two levels of this I'd always advise people to try to understand the fundamentals and hold it themselves but then understandably some people would rather hand off the security to somebody else and have um, a bank or a bank type service hold it for them and have a username and password that they log in with. I've understood all of this so far, which is uh, hey, <laughs> which is good. great. Um, the one bit that I'm not clear on is how you get your money in in the first place and where it goes. Because I know if I want to buy dollars or if I want to buy euro, I go to the bank or the bureau de change or even to the supermarket and I hand over my money to that person and get something else in return how do i actually convert my great british pounds into bitcoin and when i do where does my money actually go when i'm buying them that is such a good question um because this is quite easy to grasp um when you do this it means that there is always a willing person who is prepared to accept pounds if you're in britain in exchange for your bitcoin so this will generally be somebody who has set up a business whether it's a big business like revolut in which case you simply say i want to swap this many pounds in my revolut app for this much Bitcoin. Um, or quite often, it's a smaller company who might run something like there are these um, little machines called Bitcoin ATMs. They're not really ATMs in the sense of a banking ATM. They're more like a Bitcoin vending machine. So you can show up and it's a little bit like uh, some of them work two ways where you can put in um, £10 note, £20 note, and you would hold up your phone. They work um easily with the Bitcoin phone wallet app. It has one of those square QR code, barcode type things. You hold that up to the scanner on the front of the machine and it can read your your identifiable private key. So when you've put your 10 or 20 pounds in, then you will see um, that the person or the company that owns the ATM is sending you Bitcoin in exchange for your pounds. Um, other than ATMs, there are plenty of other ways to do it, like through an exchange where you'd have a username and password. And again, the exchange is accepting your pounds in exchange in exchange for putting Bitcoin into your account. Um, or you can accept it for goods or services. There are different, um, I don't know, artists or people who make things or people who um, sell, who, who, who will maybe build you a website and they will accept Bitcoin for their services. So there are different ways to acquire it, but probably the most common way these days is through something mainstream 
mainstream like Revolut or an online digital currency exchange. You said when they first started, they were worth pennies and now a, a Bitcoin is worth nine and a half thousand dollars. Um, that sounds like a lot of money for someone to get into this. So how much can you break it down by? Do people trade in 0.0001 Bitcoin or is there a, a fraction at which you can't get any smaller? There is. Um, in fact, it used to be a really common misconception, I think less these days, that you had to have a whole Bitcoin in order to be able to exchange it. It's very divisible. The very smallest unit is called a Satoshi. And it's um, a, it's a very, very small um very small indeed in, ter- in terms of being a fraction of a penny at current rates. So you can actually get right down to that kind of level. And in fact, um, when you have cryptocurrencies that have very, very, um, that are very, very cheaply priced, you might get several of them or quite a few of them for a pound or a cent. And they are always denominated in Satoshis because to have them denominated in 0.0000000 whatever Bitcoin would just be absolutely unreadable. So people talk about, oh, yes, that's 15 Satoshis or that's 20 Satoshis or whatever. And I should know the number of decimal places off by heart. I feel quite ashamed that I don't. (laughs) We won't dwell on it then. Um, (laughs) I think for a lot of people, when they hear about Bitcoin, they probably associate it with other things that they might not necessarily understand, like the dark web, which I suppose is often associated with illegality and things people want to cover up. Is Bitcoin at its heart involved in illegality and crime and things people are trying to hide? Do we know much about that? Well, there's a fair amount of analysis that's done on it these days. Um, Government agencies have got whole teams of um, analysts who track transactions through different cryptocurrency blockchains. I think the thing that surprises, from my point of view, there are two um, aspects to this. The first one is that um, it's a technology, it's a neutral technology, Um, You can't really say that a particular technology is good or bad. Um, It's just what people decide to use it for. And in fact, in terms of crime, especially organized crime, um, dollars is still the prime currency that's used because it's very untraceable. And one of the things that criminals who have used it in the past maybe haven't quite appreciated is that it is not um, it is not an anonymous currency. I mentioned this idea of pseudonymity before. So um, while it's entirely possible to move money around without revealing your identity, quite often people get caught through um, things like entry and exit points. Um, at some point, most people will, um, or most criminals will want to change this into dollars or pounds. And it's very difficult to do that because these days, um, any payment gateway where you're exchanging, um, Bitcoin or other currencies for a government-backed currency, you have to prove who you are and produce your passport in exactly the same way um, that you would 
as if you were um, changing that amount of dollars for pounds. So, so it's not quite as anonymous as people realise. They've all got to take their balaclavas off at some point, haven't they? <laughs> exactly, exactly. I'm going to steal that, that metaphor and use it, I think. <laughs> Marvellous. I'm pleased to have been a part in educating uh, people on this in the future. Um, you say this has been going on for many, many years now. I feel like it's been going on and I'm not really a part of it. Uh, so is it affecting my life? Should I be part of it? Will it ever become totally mainstream? Or is it, do you think, destined to be niche? <sighs> Well, um, it's certainly gained a lot of traction. Bitcoin itself, um, it's now estimated that 5% of the American public actually um, holds some Bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies. Um, So 5% is not an insignificant amount. And if you look at, say, millennial age groups and younger, millennial generation Z, whatever, I'd suspect it's much higher than 5% above those because it's likely to be much lower among older generations. So that's already something that's significant traction. But what I do think is that um, even if you don't choose to buy Bitcoin yourself, we are all very much going to be affected by um, the underlying technologies which are being used now by our banks and our governments to provide new forms of money which everyone will be using. So you can choose to use Bitcoin or you in far fewer years than most people assume, um, within 10 years, we're all going to be using government digital currencies with programmable characteristics. And I know that sounds um, really deep, so I'll try and unpack that a little bit, this idea about programmable money, Um, because that's something that's really going to affect everyone. And we've obviously seen with the effects of the pandemic that there's been a huge move away from cash to people using um, their debit cards and credit cards for purchases in shops because people don't want to touch cash at the moment. Uh, That's kind of hastened what was already happening already. But along in the history of blockchains came this idea of smart contracts, the idea of being able to move value from person A to value to to person B, while at the same time including specifications about how the currency should be used or how it should be released. So you might have, for example, an insurer moving money from person A to person B, but the insurance would only pay out if, I don't know, the temperature dropped below a certain degree. So cutting loss adjusters out of the picture in a way. Um, An automatic transaction that depends on something outside person A and person B. So the interesting thing about these government digital currencies is that they might come with conditions on them. So if, for example, the government wanted to help the farming sector, they might have something like we're going to give you a tax rebate this month of um, £40, but only if you spend it on um, British meat and cheese and vegetables or something like that. And if you don't spend it on that, it won't actually be money that you can spend anymore or money that has an expiry date if they want to boost the economy 
briefly, um, you know, this month, they might give you um, a tax rebate that has value this month, but not next month. So really, within the next 10 years, we're going to see the idea of money as being pounds in your pocket, as Harold Wilson famously said, um, as being something altogether more sophisticated that I think a lot of people are going to find very unsettling. And that's going to impact people's daily lives. Um, and if that sounds all a bit like science fiction, I'll just remind you that it's already being rolled out in China. And um, the Bank of England is already working on its own digital currency. It's got various working parties that are working on this stuff. Um, there's a group of people in the States working on a digital dollar. And this distinction between, oh, well, money, our money that we have on a debit card is already digital money. The new forms of digital money that have more in common with Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies will allow governments to do a lot of really clever things, which might be good or bad, depending on your perspective. So I'd say it's very much worth um, even people who don't have an interest in either technology or economics, which, let's face it, are pretty dry subjects. It's worth people taking an interest and in being aware of these things because it's going to touch everyone in this country who spends money, which, let's face it, is everyone. And we can neatly segue there into your book, which is The Cryptocurrency Revolution. It's being published by Kogan Page in October 2020. Uh, it's a beginner level book, so it should suit a newbie, um, not someone who's listened to this because we're all experts now. Uh, but what can you tell us about the book? Um, the book really sprang from um, all these conversations I've had with people over the past few years where I've really tried to get across these ideas in a really simple way that also informs as much as possible. And it includes lots and lots of things right from the beginning of money. What is money from the days when people used stones and seashells right through from people using gold um, through, to, through to now when we're using um, Bitcoin, when we all have bank accounts, when Facebook are launching their own virtual currency. It's really a history of money as much as it's a book about um, Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. I hope it will um, be understandable by everybody and also make people want to go out and find out more about this really interesting topic. There is a link on the 30 Minute Expert Twitter, Facebook and in the description of this podcast as well. Thank you very much for your time, Rian Lewis, software developer and writer, co-founder of Count My Crypto and author of the book, The Cryptocurrency Revolution. Thank you very much. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to The 30 Minute Expert, the podcast that aims to make you an expert on a chosen topic in 30 minutes. Information on new episodes can be found on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. Just search 30 Minute Expert. That's 30 Minute Expert. You can also suggest topics for future podcasts. Just let me know what you'd like to become an expert at in half an hour or less. <laughs>